Seeking for the help of the Lord, I direct your prayer for attention to the second epistle of Peter and chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. If you have one of our free Bibles, that is page 1129. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. I'm going to read from verse 1. This evening we are continuing with the series on the way and this evening it is the way of truth. And you'll see that in verse 2. From verse 1 though, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And he goes on to speak of how through covetousness and with uh, feigned words or deceitful words that they make merchandise of the people. Our text speaks of the way of truth and that is what I desire to speak of this evening. But what a solemn thing it is that the way of truth as viewed by the world and no doubt many heavy-hearted uh, of the Lord's dear people is being evil spoken of because of those that misrepresent it. Now we know of course that the truth itself is repulsive to many in the world. Uh, by nature especially we walk in pride and we desire to be masters of our own destiny. We will not have this man to reign over us and any doctrine, any teaching that speaks of the sovereignty of God in the affairs of man is hateful to men. So we know that that is the case. But what is spoken of here is those that are bringing in real error in doctrine and wherever there is error in doctrine, that then transposes to error in practice as well. And both go together. And people who don't know the doctrine, all they will see is, here is a person who is a religious person, here's a person that says they're a Christian, and they're doing this and they're doing that. And many people can know that the scriptures don't teach those things or don't uh, endorse those practices, but the way of truth then gets uh, a bad name. It is evil spoken of. But we should never be ashamed of the way of truth. There is a way of truth. Truth is, in the scriptures, an absolute. It's not a subjective thing. Today, men, women, 
It all taught that truth is subjective. It is what we feel it should be. And so those that are women say, well, I think I'm a man. And therefore that must be then uh, talked of as if that, that is the truth. And whatever man thinks should be the truth that is. And there is no absolute. And yet even in that people... They choose what they believe is real truth. If you're starting to cross the road and you see a car coming towards you, then you're not going to say, well, I don't think that really that's going to hit me or that's coming this way. You make a, a, a judgment as to the truth and you start to run or you jump out of the way and suddenly that person does believe in absolute truth because they see and know the danger is a solemn thing if we uh, think that truth is something that can just be bent to what we want. But we need to ask ourselves what real truth is and how we are to know this way of truth and to walk in it. And so I desire this evening uh, to look at three points. Firstly, the definition of truth and where it is to be found. And then secondly, the way of truth in doctrine. In the context of our text, it is speaking of those who bring in damnable heresies, that is, doctrines and teaching that is uh, fatal errors. It's errors in the most important, essential teaching. And then thirdly, the experience of the way of truth, which that is, is vital. As we said, wherever there is doctrine, that will affect how we walk and also what we experience, if we are in that way of truth, we shall experience the truth. So I want to look then first at the definition of truth and where it is found. We would say this, that truth is that which corresponds to reality. But even that, that it does need qualifying because if we were looking out to sea on the edge of the sea and quite often with this has happened we've seen two ships on the horizon and they're heading towards each other now it looks to us that from where we are looking that they're going to hit but they get to each other they pass and suddenly there's the two ships instead of going towards each other they're going further away. If we were to be up in the air and looking down, you'd probably see there's a mile or two between those ships. But from our vantage point, it seems like they head. We think also of, especially with regard to the Word of God, some of the statements that are in it are relative to where we are. Here in England, uh, the scriptures, uh, uh, we would say, we can prove they're correct. 
when we're told that the cold cometh out of the north and we can go out with a north wind blowing and we can say with the scriptures aright. But if we were in Australia, you'd go outside with a north wind and that would be a very hot wind. It's coming off the equator. And we would say, well, we can prove the scriptures to be wrong. They are not telling us the truth. But if we were to go to where they related to, then we find that actually it is the truth. So when we think of the truth corresponding to reality, there are things that we need to consider in that. But the best uh, way really of defining truth is that which corresponds to reality as it is perceived by God. Not as we see it, but as God sees it. Now, when Solomon took the kingdom of Judah and all Israel, actually, uh, he asked of the Lord, or the Lord asked him what he would give him. And Solomon asked for wisdom, and the Lord gave him wisdom. And that was in a dream, a vision. And the very next day there comes these two harlots to him. They'd both been in the one house, they both had had a baby, and they'd woken up in the morning and one of those babies was dead. And both were claiming that the living child was their own child. Now we know of course that that is impossible. There's two children, there's two mothers, only one of those mothers could be the true mother of each of those children. And yet both were testifying that the living was their own and that the other person had swapped the baby's dead baby over in the night. And Solomon had to determine what the truth was. And God gave him wisdom to know what to do. He made out bringing a sword that he was going to kill the living one. He was going to divide it in two and give it half to one and half to the other. And immediately the true mother, she cried out, she didn't want that her baby to be destroyed. She says, let the other woman have it, but let it not be slain. The other woman, she couldn't care less. So Solomon knew then, he drew out the mother's feelings, he knew what was the truth? God had given them the wisdom to find out what really was the truth. And it is that wisdom of God that is so vital, not just in temporal things on this earth, but for our souls to know the truths of God. So where are we to find that truth? Well, God himself he tells us in that beautiful intercessionary prayer of our Lord in John 17, we read the Lord saying or praying, sanctify them through thy truth. That is, set them apart, make them holy through thy truth. And then to make absolutely sure what he meant, he says thy word. 
is truth. So to set apart and sanctify the people of God, it is through the word of God, the Holy Bible and all that is set forth in it. The second way that we are told what truth is, is in the person of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He is the emblem of truth. The Lord says to Philip, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In the portion that we read in Ephesians chapter 4, we read several times about the truth. And one of the verses, it speaks in this way, the truth is in Jesus. It is spoken in a way that we might know the truth as it is in Jesus. But there is a very clear statement there. In Ephesians 4 and verses 20, 21, the truth is in Jesus. And we are to focus on the person of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, his teaching, his life, his death, his sufferings, his intercession in heaven. The Apostle Paul, he says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. But then there is a third definition and the Lord speaks in this way, that he that came, came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness. And he gives the reason because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit is truth. And the Lord often refers to him when he, a person, divine person, third person in the Trinity, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. He shall not speak of himself, but he shall receive of mine, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth. The truth is in Jesus and shall show it unto you. So really there's the witness of the word of God. We are the witness of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and the witness of the Holy Spirit. So truth as perceived by God is revealed to us in the word of God, the Bible, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, a witness to us by the Holy Spirit of truth. And remember, the Holy Spirit is the author of the word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is spirit breathed. When we come to the experience of the truth, it is the Holy Spirit that brings us to experience the truth of God. But the question then arises, and this is what the world especially will ask, and those that speak of the way of truth wrongly, they will say, well, 
you're getting your truth from the Bible, but how do you know that the Bible is true? Well, there are several ways. One, that we know that the Word of God is a reliable collection of historical records. It gives the history of the world right from its formation by God and man first placed upon it, right through to when the world shall be no more. And it traces that history through the nation of Israel. And so by linking the uh, lifetime or time when uh, a person like Adam had his son and when he had his son, you can link them through, you can work out the age of the earth when the flood came, 1640 years, and you can work out approximately the age of the world as 6,000 years old. And this is from the Word of God as a historical record. We have the record through Kings and Chronicles, and before that, Samuel, of the children of Israel. And to prove it is that record, we have names, names of people, genealogies. When we come to Matthew, we have the tracing of the lineage of our Lord, and it goes from Abraham right through to Christ, a series of 14 generations. Then we have in Luke, a tracing of the generations back from Mary and going right back to Adam and to our Lord. It is not as what Peter says we are falsely accused of, uh, following cunningly devised fables, when we know known unto you the power and coming of our Lord. It is a historical record, a record of our Lord's life, death, sufferings, resurrection again. And we should not lose sight of that. It's verified, though it does not need to be, but by Josephus and other secular writers and the existence of Israel even today. Also, we know it is the truth because it was written by or used as the penman by eyewitnesses and during the lifetime of other witnesses that could question and uh, really test whether the things written were right. If we were to take 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul speaks of the resurrection, he deals with the error that there is no resurrection of the dead, and he speaks of 500 brethren whom the Lord appeared to at once, he says some of them have fallen asleep, some have died, but most were alive at that day. If what Paul was testifying in that first part of that 1 Corinthians 15 is a beautiful summary of the gospel really, and if that was not correct, they could have easily questioned and it has not been questioned also the word of God, it speaks of supernatural events. Sometimes it is those very supernatural things that men cannot understand that they'll pour scorn on the word of God. But we're dealing with the God made heaven and earth 
He that fills all things and the world that was made in a supernatural way, we would expect that there be those supernatural uh, events, those events that have been foretold like a thousand years before Christ came, David in the Psalms, penning exact words of our Lord, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Psalm 22, then Psalm 69, his pierced his hands and his feet, and these things were fulfilled. And when our Lord died on Calvary, again and again it was written that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so we know that the Bible is the truth because of that witness. Our Lord himself said that he would die and that he would rise again, and he did. When someone does what they said they would do, then we believe them, we receive them as what they said as being true, and he said that he was the eternal Son of God. Another reason is because the authors themselves, those who were the penmen, they claimed that it actually was not of human origin at all, but they were divine. Holy men of God wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But another thing is that the Bible, or shall we say God himself, must be of supreme authority. There must be a final authority that one could appeal to. And we would expect, if the Holy Bible was, and it is, the Holy Word of God, that that must be the final authority of everything. It is utter pride of man, a man that has been born like yesterday, that has come upon this earth and will soon die, that he should take the word of God that claims to be the word of God and says that he knows better, or that we should go to an archaeologist or go to a professor and test the word of God by that. Yes, the word of God is buried, verified by uh, by men, but it doesn't need to be because it is of the supreme authority. We should not as Christians ever be caught by this trap and think that, well, the Bible can only be true and only be God's word if man says it is. It used to be the thought with the Roman Catholic Church that it was the church that could tell and would determine what the word of God was. Well, God gives his word and the word itself gives witness as to what it is and where it comes from. Its very consistency, though written over 1,500 years by some 40 different authors, and yet its consistency throughout and its interpreting of itself, comparing scripture with scripture, uh, it is one volume, 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, but all one book, one volume, all written by God, all inspired, all the work of God. 
believe this is the last explained the marvellous wonder of end look at creation and not see how wonderful and marvellous it is but the Bible explains it as such it also explains the presence of sin and death and sorrow and suffering it is these things that show us the completeness of the word is given by God and of course the word of God the Bible shows us not only about this world, but the way of salvation, about ourselves, how we are to be saved, how we are lost, how we need to be saved, and the way of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that then that we know that the Bible truly is to be relied upon, it is the truth, it is the word of God, some 500 times in the Bible we read the phrase, Thus saith the Lord. It is the word of the Lord to man. Paul says of the Thessalonians when he preached to them, when he brought the word of God, the Old Testament to them, he says that they received it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God. We read of the Bereans when they heard the apostle preach, they searched the scriptures as the Old Testament, scriptures daily, whether these things were so, and therefore many of them believed. They were testing the preacher before them with the word of God, and it be a good thing if people had heard the word of God preached today, did the same. We're told by Peter that no scripture is of any private interpretation, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now when we say no private interpretation, God meant what he wrote, and God had a message and that message is not to be interpreted in some other way by us. If we were to send a letter to someone, and especially if it was in the way it needed to be translated, we wouldn't want someone to read it and say, well, I think this is what, the, what you meant. And, and they give a completely different version of what the originator said. No. The Lord has a message. He has words that are in context and to take them out of context very often gets a wrong message and wrong teaching. But we have to remember that. It's not of a private interpretation. It is God's interpretation, God's message that is in his word. And of course we do know and believe that if we believe the word of God to be truth, it is a matter of faith. In Hebrews 11, we have the definitions of faith. And it is by faith that we understand that the worlds were created. And our faith does have evidence, evidence in the word of God. But it is faith, and faith is the gift of God. And all men have not faith. We should never expect that all men will just say, well, yeah, we, we hear what you're saying, we receive the Bible as truth. 
Men won't. But it doesn't stop us testifying and knowing in ourselves that the word of God is the truth as perceived by God. God telling us what he sees and what he knows is to be the truth. And it is that way of truth that we are to walk in. Some people might say, well, 2,000 years after Christ, is it still relevant? Well, outside of this chapel, we've got Psalm 100 uh, quoted there, and there the last verse of that psalm, that his truth endureth unto all generations. It's a good reminder as we come into the house of God, all generations. But what does the word say about truth? We're told in the word that we can walk in the truth. John, in his epistles, his third epistle, he says how pleased he was that my children walk in the truth. It's a blessed thing when we have children or grandchildren and they're walking in the truth. We can love the truth. John again in his first epistle and chapter 3, he says, My little children, let us not love in word, nor neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Not deceiving one another, but actually love in reality, in the bonds of truth as well. How we are to tell the truth from error, well, one way, and I feel like often a very good way, is to tell it by the Spirit. We spoke of the Holy Spirit as being the Spirit of the truth, and we're told, try the spirits, whether they are of God or not. And so we are to test, does it really speak of God? Is it really of God or not? In Psalm 119, it speaks in verse 30 of choosing the way of truth. The psalmist says, I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments I have, have I laid before me. And so may we ease this evening and each that hear the word this evening be given that grace to choose the way of truth. Joshua, he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, a distinct choosing which way to go. We can love a person in truth. Again, John, in the third epistle, he says, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. I hope there are those we walk with in church fellowship amongst our churches. They walk in the same truth and we love them in the truth. When our Lord spoke to the woman at the well of Samaria, he said to her that we must worship God in spirit and in truth, both with the spirit and with the truth. Many will say, well, we can worship God however we want. But the word of God tells us how we are to worship. 
God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. We think also of the world itself, and we said that we cannot convince others who have not faith about the truth of the word of God, but we are told very clearly in John, the Gospel according to John in chapter 14, and it is the Spirit of truth, the Lord says, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But he says of his disciples, but ye know him. And so the Lord says very clearly that the world cannot receive the spirit of truth. It is ignorant of the work and power of the Holy Spirit of God. And the Lord tells us why they won't receive the word of God. In fact, in uh, John 17, he says, I've given them thy word and the world hath hated them only because we have the word of God that is speaking the truth. One of our hymns says, Nor men are men willing to have the truth told. The sight is too killing for pride to behold. The truth about ourselves, about our fallen nature, about what we really are. Sometimes it is that the reason why we make and come to wrong conclusions is because we do not know the truth or the power of God. Remember those that came trying to trip up our Lord and they supposed a brother who'd had a wife and he died. The wife then had married his brother, which was required by the law, and they had seven brethren. She had them all and then she died. And they said in the resurrection... Whose wife shall she be? They all had her. And the Lord said they did err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God, that in the resurrection I neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are the angels as the angels of God in heaven. And so our Lord clearly points the, the error that they were walking in was because they did not know. They did not know the scriptures. They did not know the power of God at all. Well, I want to look secondly at the way of truth in doctrine. If we have established that the truth is an absolute truth, it is in the word of God, it is as received by God. What is the way of truth in doctrine? And as we said at the beginning, doctrine is very important. Doctrine is teaching. A dictionary would say a belief or a set of beliefs held or taught by a church, is doctrines. And we are to know the way of truth as a doctrine. And all, all churches have statements of, of what they 
believe. We as a church here, we would hold to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith and the Gospel Standard Articles of Faith. And we are Calvinistic. That is, we believe in the total depravity of man. Man is completely dead in trespasses and sins. We believe in unconditional election, that from eternity the people of God were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Thine they were, thou gavest them me. And we read in Jeremiah, I've loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That election is a sovereign choice of God, of a people. And then limited atonement. Our Lord Jesus Christ died not for every man, woman and child on this earth. He didn't make an atonement which was just general. It was particular. I lay down my life for the sheep. He had laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was specifically his people that he died for and made atonement for. And the scriptures are very clear on this. These are the doctrines of the Calvinistic faith. Limited atonement, irresistible grace. When the Lord saves a person, it is very effectual. He passes by them when they're in their sin. He bids them live. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he quickens, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. It is an irresistible, powerful work of God. It is not an offer, it is the work of God. It is, his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And that is the gospel without that. Without election, without the atonement, without irresistible grace, no man, no woman, no one would be saved. We all are born hating God, resisting God, fighting against him. No one will of themselves accept and embrace and go the way of salvation. Only God can change our hearts. Only God can call. Our Lord says, No man can come unto me except the Father which sent me draw him and I'll raise him up at the last day. This is the work of God that ye believe in him whom God hath sent. We also believe in the perseverance of the saints that those whom God has chosen, those whom he has redeemed, those whom he has called by grace, they will persevere unto the end. They will not fall away. They are kept by the power of God unto salvation. It is a great comfort that it is God who has saved them and he's given them eternal life and they shall have that life beginning from the new birth and to all eternity. He will chasten, he will correct them, but he will keep them. And these are the, the, the doctrines of, uh, of 
the Calvinistic faith, the Reformed faith. But doctrine will always affect practice. Why are there women in leadership now in some churches, teaching positions today? Because people have turned aside from the doctrines, the teaching and the word of God that forbids that. And so then the practice is allowed. Why are some churches embracing the world and all its unholiness? Why is there the reverence and irreverence in worship? It is all because it starts to stem from doctrine and teaching first and then it goes into practice. Why is not the Lord's day kept? Because the doctrine concerning the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Day, the foundation one day in seven from creation is not taught nor kept. Why do those whose lives show no gracious change, why are they allowed to sit down at the Lord's table? Or when they die, who have never hardly entered into the house of God and at the funeral they're, they're sent forth as if they've gone to heaven and all the congregation are virtually told you can go to heaven and have the world and have no religion, never go to the house of God, never read the word of God, never pray, never make profession, but all be well with you. The practice, it follows false doctrine. And so doctrine is very important that when we speak about the way of truth, then we think of it as the way of truth in doctrine. What we have in our doctrinal statements, what we have as setting forth as how we view and read and understand the word of God and what we'll base our practice on, how we preach, that is vital, that we are walking in the way of truth, the truth of God, a mighty, powerful God, a merciful, gracious God who has made a way of escape from the wrath to come and that way is to be proclaimed in all the world to every creature. The word of the gospel is to be sent forth as a way of hope for sinners the only name given among men whereby we must be saved is in the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Our desire should be not to know whether we are elect, but that we have heard the truth, obeyed the truth, are walking in the way of the truth, and that we have then an evidence day by day that we are of the truth, we are the people of God. Now the Lord says to those that believed on his name in John chapter 8 verse 30, if ye continue in my word, then ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That was what was a true disciple indeed, and that is the evidence that we want that the truth of God affects our lives, affects what we do, and extols the Lord high, lifts him high, 
and gives all the praise and honour and glory to him and puts us in the dust, humbles the pride of man, bows us before the sovereignty of God and gives us that great hope in the Lord's work, not in our own. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. I want to look lastly at the experience of the truth. May we be very clear on this. The truth is not truth because we experience it. But we know that we are of God because we experience the truth. We must experience the truth, the God-given experience. You know, you could go to the Mormons, the Roman Catholics, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and all of them might come up with some religious experience. But just because they've experienced it doesn't mean to say that it is the truth of God. But when the truth of God is set forth, then that will be experienced by God's people. The Apostle, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says that in God's wisdom, I'm putting it in paraphrase here, that the world by wisdom did not know God. Then it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God has given great wisdom to man. He can go to the moon. He can understand computers. He can do all sorts of things. But God has deprived him, put a barrier, put a flaming sword, as it were, at the uh, entrance to the uh, Garden of Eden, that man cannot find out God himself. But God will use the preaching of the truth to reveal the truth to him. We sung in our middle hymn that we must not learn God's truth as schoolboys learn their tasks. That is not proof against illusion's blast. We must learn it by experience. So how that works out, we think of the Apostle Paul in chapter 7 of Romans when he says that I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He didn't know he was a sinner. He thought he was a good person, doing everything right, praying right, worshipping right. But then God convinced him of sin. And then he died to hope in himself. Then he was brought to trust in mercy alone. He speaks of the warfare within. He says, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? He gives the answer, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. We think of how it is set forth in the Beatitudes. 
Whereas Paul experienced what sin was, felt it in his members, felt it working, felt that it was stronger than his will. He wanted to do good but couldn't. So we find with the Beatitudes, our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, and how the Lord there, he says that blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. There are people that actually feel unholy and unclean. They want to do good, but only evil is present with them. They cannot think right thoughts are right. They cannot do right things, and it grieves them. They mourn over this body of death. They say, I'm unrighteous, I'm unclean. I'm altogether ungodly, unholy. And they thirst and long for holiness, for righteousness. And the Lord's pronounced a blessing on those that hunger and thirst in that way. And so the doctrine of our sinful nature, the doctrine of our depravity, the doctrine of the Lord's work in the sinner's heart, making him hunger, thirst after God and after the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is actually experienced, it's actually felt in the heart. We read in Isaiah that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, those that know it are those that are taught of God. They say what the word says is true. My heart is deceitful. It is wicked. I feel it so. I know I am. It's not just lip service. You can actually point to things we thought and said and done that are evil, that are wrong, that are sinful. Not that we're deliberately sinning that grace might abound, but we know the corruption that is within. And when we think of the other side, is not just the experience of the sin, of the malady, but it's the remedy as well. You think of someone that has got cancer or got an illness, and at first they don't know what they've got, but then they have tests and they have investigations and they experience all of these things. They experience knowing that they've got this disease, they're knowing that they've got this illness, they feel the symptoms, they know all these things. And then they start to have treatment, and they experience the treatment. Then they start to experience the healing, the remedy. No one that's ever been sick and healed, been in a condition of facing death and then being healed and given life you tell them you haven't experienced that you've just known it in the head those who have looked on those who have heard about it they've just had it in the head but the one that's walked through it they know what it is to actually experience it and so it is with the things of God when we know the blessings of the word of God the beauties of Christ the loveliness of Christ, the setting free from receiving the truth of God, from error, from evil ways, being taught 
of those ways of walking in them and proving those ways that are joyful, that have liberty, that have fellowship with God and with the people of God, to have the love of God shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Ghost. The experiencing of it, it doesn't prove it is truth, but it proves that we are walking in the truth because we are experiencing the truth in our lives and in our hearts. You know, in the beautiful passage in Deuteronomy verse uh, chapter 8, Thou shalt remember all the way that the Lord thy God hath led thee these forty years in the wilderness to try thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst thou would serve the Lord or no. You know, they experienced trials, temptations, chastening, hungering, thirsting, heat, cold, enemies in that wilderness those 40 years. And they proved the Lord's feeding them. He withheld not the manna from their mouths. He kept them. But he also proved what was in their heart. You can't read of Israel and say, well, there's a people that is perfect and pure. Now you'd read Israel and say there's a rebellious people, an idolatrous people, a murmuring people, a complaining people, a disobedient people. And yet in spite of all, the Lord saved them and delivered them and brought them to the promised land. He dealt with their inventions. He dealt with their sins. We must experience the truth of God. Walk in it. Faith, though the smallest, will surely be tried. Peter says, The trial of your faith be much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. Shall be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of our Lord. The scriptures also set forth to us how we can be assured that we are of the truth. In Romans 8, we are told that the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, He that keepeth, his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by his spirit, the spirit which he hath given us. And so it is the effect on a believer's daily life, the opposite to what we have in the context of our text where the truth is, the way of truth is evil spoken of, because of the lives of those that are holding the truth. You know, with Daniel, those of the other presidents, they hated him, they envied him, they hated his religion, but they couldn't find anything to hold against him except that which concerned his God. And it's a blessed testimony if that is with us as well. But men could not find anything to say against us except concerning the doctrine, the truth, the word of God. But our practice is upright and glorifies God. 
we to show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of nature's darkness and into his marvellous light. We are to walk in the way of truth. We are to know where we get that truth from. We are to know what the truth means in doctrine. And we are then to be found in the way of truth, in doctrine and in practice, in experience. May the Lord grant us truly to be of the truth and in the way of the truth that leads above, trusting solely in the death and in the righteousness of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, trusting our whole salvation in what he has done for us on Calvary and in our hearts, what he has taught us. All thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Amen.